Hi, I'm Neville J. McKenzie, and you're listening to Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. You're about to hear the fourth in the series of 15 episodes that were created for the Entrepreneurs Asia website, the magazine website founded and created by my colleague Max Henry. In the first cast, I gave you a brief background to the series. I hope that you find the series interesting and informative. As you continue to listen to the series, please visit my website at asiabizstories.com. That's asiabizstories.com. And please leave any comments or suggestions. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Today's interview is with Michael Zakur. Michael has over 18 years of business experience in Asia, with an extensive knowledge of the Asian supply chain, starting with hands-on experience on the Chinese factory floor and travelling throughout China, building his knowledge and experience over time with over 200 multinational SME firms, He is now an author, writer, public speaker and lecturer. Educated at Seton Hall University in marketing and communications, Michael is without doubt an expert in his field and it is with great pleasure that we are able to discuss with Michael his recently published book, Chinese Super Consumers, telling the story of how businesses have succeeded and failed with the Chinese consumer and the link with history, as well as other insights into Asia's most influential consumer market. Hi Michael. Thanks for making the time in your busy schedule for this interview. Hi, Neville. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Can you tell me what it is that you do? Sure. I'm a principal at the global strategy consulting firm Tompkins International. I run the company's China-Asia-Pacific practice. I've been doing business in Asia for almost 18 years, and I've been doing business in China for the last 14 years. Can you tell us who Chinese super consumers is aimed at? Sure. So for the last 10 years of my work in China, the majority of my business has been working with foreign brands, retailers, consumer product companies, service companies on entering China, growing in China, but ultimately uh, engaging and building relationships with Chinese consumers. So really for 10 years, I've built up this very intimate relationship and knowledge of what makes a Chinese consumer tick. You know, the mistake that a lot of foreign companies make when they come to China is they see Chinese people wearing nice Xenia suits and driving BMWs and drinking Bordeaux, and they think we just have another westernized customer on our hands. And that you and I both know is the furthest thing from the truth. So we may buy the same suits or drink the same wine, but what motivates Westerners and Chinese to make that same purchase is very different. So in the book, China's Super Consumers, It's really aimed at companies who are currently doing business in China, who are considering entering the Chinese market with their products and services, executives, uh, entrepreneurs, as well as students, those in academia, anyone who has an interest in hearing the stories of the brands, the companies, the executives um, who've come to China with their consumer products and succeeded here. 
What do you want the reader to come away with after reading Chinese superconsumers? Well, that, that's a, a good question, Neville. There's a few things. The first is I, I think that people in the West, especially, really don't understand how massive a consumer market we're talking about here. We called the book China's Super Consumers. Uh, not because they're going to be wearing capes and masks and swooping in to save the day, but really just from a massive size and scale point of view. With more than 350 million consumers in the Chinese middle class, more than 2 million millionaires, second highest number of billionaires after the United States, 450 million people in China engaging e-commerce. So by way of comparison, that's larger than the entire population of the United States at 320 million. So there's just this massive scale here um, that a lot of people still don't understand. A lot of people still have visions of red China and a very poor, backward, undeveloped country. And they don't realize that these Chinese consumers are actually changing the world they live in without them even seeing it. You start off by taking a historical perspective, going back 4,000 years, and then you take us up to the modern time. Why did you do this? Sure. Yeah, some people were a little skeptical at first and asked, you know, are you writing a history book or a business book? And, and I think that the book is, in a sense, it's really a history, culture, and philosophy book disguised as a business book. And the reason we start there is, well, essentially, it's all I've ever known. Because I moved to China a long time ago and I lived here, I immersed myself in the culture and the language and the philosophy and the history and the people. And I tend to think one of the reasons I've been successful here and I've been able to help others, uh, whether they're Fortune 500 companies or entrepreneurs to success here, because I've based everything I've done from the historical cultural foundation. And so I'm very much of the opinion that whether you're here to sell a men's suit or a lady's handbag or a luxury car or uh, milk, if you don't understand the culture, context, philosophy that leads to mindset and the mindset that leads to purchase motivators, then you're not going to last very long here in China. So I really started the book the way I start most interactions with my clients is let's talk about history, culture, context first, then devise a strategy around that and then enter based on that. Later on in the book, you mentioned that some of your clients, they tell you they don't want a history or a lesson in social from a Chinese perspective. Why do you think they tell you this? Well, again, I, I think that, you know, smart companies appreciate that you can't approach all markets the same way. I mean, you wouldn't enter uh, Latvia, Ireland, Spain, or Holland in the same manner. So there's certainly a, an awareness among corporate executives that every country and market has its own peculiarities. I don't think they appreciate just how deeply different it is here. Whether it's, you know, we view in the West time as linear. In China, they view time as cyclical or circular. So if you don't start with that basis, you're going to get lost at the negotiating table. For those who may be a little resistant to start there at first, I usually can change their minds by pointing back to the companies who failed in China and more often than not, those companies failed because they didn't take proper steps to appreciate culture and context. So you look at a company like Home Depot, uh, who came to China as a do-it-yourself home store without an appreciation that there's no real do-it-yourself culture here. 
and that you can hire somebody from 100 RMB a day to fix up your entire house, why would you do it yourself? And so I have a litany of, you know, corporate bodies that have washed up on the rocks of China as, as good examples to yeah. incentivize them. In your book, you say that the Chinese consumer was born 30 years ago. So what's the difference between a Chinese consumer and a Chinese super consumer? Well, uh, when we're talking about the super consumers, we're not talking about one that evolved into the other. In fact, it's, again, the scale that's made them super consumers. So we view the development of a consumer culture and economy in China over the last 30 years in basically three stages. Um, if we look at the period in the uh, early 90s into the mid-90s, even into the late 90s, these were the first Chinese in several generations who engaged in for-profit business. Um, you know, it was a massive wave of privatization from state-owned enterprises. The first entrepreneurs came. The money was pouring in from Taiwan and Hong Kong. And so these were the first people in China to have disposable income. They were the first people in generations who weren't being told which work unit to live in, where to work, what to eat what to wear, where to go. They had some money in their pocket. And the first wave of foreign companies that came and met them were the luxury companies from Europe. Then as we kind of moved into the period from the late 90s up to about 2010, that's when we saw mass consumer culture take place in China. So we went from probably 30 or 40 or 50 million people with disposable income to probably close to 250 million to 300 million. Now, the super consumer era is from 2010 to present day, where there are legitimately seven to 800 million people in China who have disposable income of some sort. And they are spending it. They're changing China. They're changing the world. And that's why they're super consumers. So are they from the same demographic group or multiple demographic groups? Well, exactly. They? they span demographics now. It precludes demographics. It precludes... Uh, geography. So traditionally, the spending power was concentrated in the coastal cities, or what we used to call the tier one cities of Guangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai, etc. Um, but now again, the super part comes in where you're seeing this development and this disposable income, all demographic groups, all geographies across China. So they're not just rich or super rich or middle Well, yeah, class. you can segment them. You know, yeah. No, that's a very good point. I yeah. mean, we can segment them. So if we took these seven or eight hundred million at the very top, you have yeah. the, the ultra wealthy and then the super wealthy. And I'll let the critics figure out what the difference between ultra and super wealthy yeah. is. Um, and then you get into the wealthy, the upper middle class, the middle class, and the emerging middle classes. And of course, you still have you know, people who haven't entered the middle class in China. But yeah, part of the super consumer development now is because there have been a few generations of wealth building in China, you see this mess. So you might have a family who can afford to buy a 400-foot yacht from Shanghai, and you may have a farmer who for the first time can buy Crest toothpaste instead of using yeah. charcoal to brush his teeth, but they're both consumer. And that's the big difference today is you can count on almost the entire population as consumers in China for the right product. So the super consumer could be the farmer or the middle class? That could be. They are all. They are. Or they yeah, are all they're, yeah. they're all part of it. And so, you know, if we look at the developing cities in China, what used to be called the tier two and tier three cities, actually 75% of new GDP growth in China 
is coming from the second and third tier cities, not the overdeveloped first tiers. The book has lots of facts and figures of how companies are doing in China. How does this help the reader to understand how they can become successful in China? Sure. Well, <clears throat> this is not a how to do business in China book. I suppose there are a number of them out there, some of them good, some of them okay. But we're not going to teach you how to do business in China here. This is not a step-by-step, -step, nor is it proposing to you, the reader, that we have some secret formula to success in China that we figured out and somehow nobody else did. Because the truth is, there is no secret formula to success in China. So what we did is, in the second half of the book, is we simply allowed the companies, the brands, and the executives who have succeeded here to tell their story. And so hopefully what the reader will take away is after reading these success stories, they can figure out what elements of those stories made for a successful product or company in China. So we have the stories of first-time entrepreneurs who hit it big in China, all the way to the stories of how Lenovo successfully markets to the urban and rural communities at the same time. One interesting story right at the beginning was Yan Wu, 20-year-old advertising executive. She spends her money on, in Starbucks and she wears designer brands or fairly luxurious brands. When she gets married, won't her spending patterns change? Sure. You know, it's interesting. One of the dynamic changes in China over the last 30 years has been the family dynamic where China shifted from the traditionally large rural family to the era of the little emperors and little princesses, the one child. And so what we've seen is one of the, one of the facts and realities of selling in China today is that you need to be aware that for every one person, one child, there are six pockets. So you have the parents and four grandparents. You know, this woman has a lot of disposable income, but she's also able to wear and use and eat and drink all of these things because she's had the money and the input of her parents and her four grandparents as well. It's impossible to say how that dynamic will change in the next 10 to 20 years, but I think at least in the short term, it's a pattern that will repeat itself. So when she gets married and has a kid, you know, remember now you've got this woman, you know, she's white collar, she's an executive, she's living in Shanghai. It's not true of everybody in China, but she's going to be that prototypical, you know, two income, mom and dad are both working, making good money for grandparents. And, you know, this is where the growth and spending is coming from, from this younger generation. The China years, um, what happens in a year in China, maybe took half a decade in the U.S., Right. So could it be what happened in the U.S. now where massive debts could it also happen in China? Um, could, is it possible that the Chinese consumer could uh, evolve into another version of a European consumer or a USA consumer? Right. So the first group in world history of super consumers were the American consumers of the post-war baby boom era. The world had literally never seen anything like it before. At the end of World War II, most of the world laid in ruins. Economies were wrecked. Russia, most of Asia, most of Europe lied in ruins. And it was really the American economy and American homeland that stood out above all of these. And so you had these millions of GIs coming home from the war, and they got educated, and they started buying houses and filling the houses with stuff. 
And then what happened was we kind of went on this 50-year spending spree. And where you started to see things change was in the last 10 or 15 years where a lot of this spending was money that people didn't really have, you know, running up the credit card bills, et cetera. Today in China, is as much as Chinese citizens are spending, there's still an average savings rate of between 30 and 40 percent. So the average savings rate in the U.S. is 1%. In China, if we split it down the middle, call it 35%. They're a long way here in China from being a debt-driven consumer society. Now, your point is well taken. Given the way things change in China so quickly, it might not take 50 years for that to happen, but it could happen sooner. Wealth distribution within China. You have the very rich and you have the very poor. Is it possible that an evening out of the wealth? Sure. Um, you know, there's, there's two ways, Neville, of looking at that. While it's true there, there are some issues of income inequality and, and wealth distribution, you know, the Chinese government is very aware of that yeah. and is working very hard to ensure that all of China becomes developed and all of China um, reaps the benefits and rewards of uh, the new China. On the other hand, you know, there are 350 million people in the Chinese middle class and through urbanization in the next 10 years, that number could get up to five or 600 million. So yeah, there are a couple forces at play there where you do have these wide income disparities between the very, very top and the very, very bottom, but you've also got what is already the world's largest and will be even bigger middle class. Let's look at the luxury market. You have companies like Louis Vuitton, they're very big in China. How do they relate their, what their strategy in China to what they do abroad in their home mm. countries in Europe and America? Sure. So what, one of the really big ideas that comes out of the book, and it's something that I've seen develop over the last two or three years, is that we've gone from a world where you needed to go and sell in the China market to what we call the China global consumer demographic. And so these early generations of Chinese consumers and business people have now moved on to the second or third phase of wealth creation. They're a lot more sophisticated. They're a lot more savvy. But most importantly, they're global. And so they're traveling in record numbers. 100 million Chinese took trips abroad this year. They're educating their kids all over the world. They're investing in real estate all over the world. They're discovering new brands while they're abroad. And so you're seeing the traditional luxury brands have had to adapt to this newly global customer. And so some of the luxury brands that I work with, what we're really working hard on now, is integrating what they're doing in China proper uh, with what they're doing in their home country and then ensuring that there's a global strategy. So, you know, an LV, for example, needs to be very conscious of the connection between their Shanghai, Paris, and New York outlets. I recently heard that Elvia looking at their pricing structure. They're thinking of increasing European prices to offset the losses that they're having in China because, right. because Chinese consumers are going abroad. Is it possible that the Chinese consumers that go abroad will think, hmm, I'm not saving money, I might as well stay in China? And well, boy, that's, that's a hard one. You know, I think every company, whether you're in luxury or consumer products, needs to be constantly evaluating their, their price structure in China and anywhere else in the world. You know, 
one in three luxury purchases made today globally is made by a Chinese citizen. But 60% of those purchases happen outside of the mainland of China. So, you know, I would encourage companies not to look at a sale not made or made in China as being a loss or win. You want that China consumer's business, regardless of which store they're shopping in. I suppose with a company, you can make an argument that you want to raise the prices in your home market. But then again, you might be turning off consumers from your home market. Yeah, so that's one of the you'd have dangers to be careful that, yeah, to uh, try and yeah. cater your pricing in any given market to one demographic. But you know, the larger issue is that um, these Chinese consumers are traveling. They spend more per capita per head per trip than any other traveler in the world at about eight thousand dollars per trip. And so, the bigger issue is whether you're a services company, a consumer product company, a luxury company. You should be thinking globally in terms of the Chinese consumer. You met, mentioned before about toothpaste.、Uh, Unilever was in the past one of the big winners. Recently, they announced a drop in of twenty percent in sales, possibly indicating a slowdown in the Chinese economy. So, with a slowdown, how do you think that will affect? Sure, I mean, I, I think that there's certainly been a little bit of a slowdown the last couple of years. I view that as actually a healthy development. China has grown in you know between nine and fifteen percent for the better part of twenty-five years per year. The the fact that it's slowing down, quote unquote, to seven percent or even six percent is still a higher growth rate than any other country on earth. Number one, number two, it's actually showing that the Chinese economy is maturing. There's something wrong at a certain point if you're still growing at ten percent. That's one. Number two, people then make it sound like. Slowdowns don't happen in the rest of the world. I mean, I think there's a little bit of a panic among some foreign companies that the Chinese economy is slowing down. Should we get、yeah. out? Well, did they get out of the U.S. when the U.S. goes into recession? Did they、yeah. give up on Europe when Europe goes into recession? No, you adjust. So if you have to adjust your product mix or your pricing or how and where you're selling your product, then you adjust for the short term. But you know, to see some of these companies and Public panicking over a slowdown in the Chinese economy is a reason to get out. I think is very short-sighted. Chinese consumers are probably one of the most savvy consumers with online. How should a foreign company wishing to enter should they just dive straight into say Tmall or Alibaba, or should they try and set up their own e-commerce site? Sure. I mean, the first question is. You have to ask yourself: Is how much brand recognition do I already have in China? If you are a company or a brand that has absolutely no exposure in China, has never been heard of before in China, has never sold in China before, it's virtually impossible to just enter China through、uh, e-commerce alone. Chinese consumers, like you said, are incredibly savvy. They're incredibly brand aware. Brand is everything here in China. So you really need to invest in a 360 approach to gaining mindshare, trust, respect, telling your story, your history. That's very hard to do in an electronic-only format. It's hard to do if people can't come into your store and touch and feel and smell、um, what your brand is about. On the other hand, e-commerce has opened the door. For some companies to come into the Chinese market or engage with Chinese consumers, as long as they do the hard work to build up the brand and the trust, 
but you know, as an opportunity to simply sell through online is very difficult. I think where you might start to see a change is with smaller companies and smaller vendors around the world who aren't necessarily trying to win or enter the Chinese market, but to get Chinese consumers. If you're a local, let's say, uh, antique furniture company, if you are a well-established Portland, Oregon jewelry company making some you know, funky new designs that Chinese women might find appealing, I think that direct-to-direct sale is going to develop. But in terms of you know, if you're a $300 million brand from England and you've never been in China before and think that you can just put a store on Tmall and you're going to win, it's not going to happen. We recently had the 11th of November where on Tmall prices were slashed by up to 50%. The registration fee just to be on Tmall is so high that it actually restricts you from actually making money. So um, how do companies get around that? Sure, I mean, I think that would vary from company to company. I can't speak for any one particular company. Obviously, if you're a company with a billion-dollar valuation, between a $100 million valuation, you may see the costs associated with doing business on Tmall very differently. I, I think I think that tends to be more of a domestic issue where internet retailing can oftentimes be a race to the bottom here. Yeah. But if you're a foreign company, you're probably not wanting to participate in the mass market or commodities here in China anyway. You're going to get killed by the local competition every time. But, you know, if you're a well-established, well-funded foreign brand, you know, I think you need to view, again, Tmall or any other particular platform as a part of your mix. If you're going in and spending all of your money in China on Tmall and expecting that's going to be how you make a profit here, you might be disappointed. But if you have your own dedicated .cn website and a Tmall presence and do some pop-up stores and, you know, handle social media marketing correctly, you may find different results. I mean, a platform is only as good as how a company utilizes it. You mentioned that your book is mostly about companies telling their story. Is that story for most companies going to have a happy ending? Or will there still be more companies that still fail, even when well, they take all their... I guess the way, the way I would look at it is, if you can show me a market in the world where there are not more business failures than successes, I'd like to see that market. You know, it's the nature of competitive capitalism. It's yeah. the nature of the consumer product business. You know, my belief in, in life and business is the best you can do is put yourself in a position to succeed, right? As long as you've done everything you can to put yourself in a position to succeed, then you have a much better chance of, of actually following through on that. And so, you know, the companies that we talk about in the book, uh, the one thing they all had in common was they, they put themselves in a position where success was possible. And that was by understanding culture, history, and philosophy, by doing strategy before structure, that one I can't emphasize enough. It's amazing to me still how many companies of all sizes want to just go and put up the structure before they figured out what the strategy really was yeah, for the I've long term. Yeah, I've seen a few times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, get into the culture, do strategy for structure, find the right partnerships. Yeah. Again, you can't go it alone in China. You need the right partners and then handle your marketing, merchandising and pricing correctly. Those are the building blocks of success. Those are the four things every company must do. 
And is there anything else you want to add about doing business in China? Yeah, I just, I guess I, I would want, you know, people to understand that China is not going away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's an old saying, you may not be interested in war, but sometimes war is interested in you. And so same with China. You may not right now be interested in China, but I assure you China is interested in you. And so, you know, this is an era where we're literally seeing hundreds of millions of people who want to spend and live the way we have in the West for the last hundred years. And that's going to impact your life, your business, your brand, the environment, and every part of your life. And so you can either be prepared for that or uh, get run over by it. And um, can you just tell me, if anyone wants to contact you, how can they get in touch sure. with you? Sure. Um, they can reach me uh, at my email, which is mzakor, M-Z-A-K-K-O-U-R, at Tompkins, Inc., T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S, Inc. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, at Michael Zakor, or they can give me a call. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank and you, Neville. Thank you for your time. Great. I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me in today. That was author Michael Zakor, a genuine China expert. We hope that you enjoyed listening to the interview as much as we did making it. Thanks, Michael, for giving us a brief taste of your latest book, Chinese Super Consumers, your insights into the Chinese super consumer market and how they are affecting the world, and the link to China's history. We wish you all the best, Michael, and look forward to more of your insights. This is Nabil J. McKenzie, ending the fourth AsiaBusiness.com interview. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action.